Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, an investigative journalist breaks down why students in Clovis Unified classrooms are breathing safer air than their counterparts in Fresno Unified. And later, irrigating crops using water produced during oil and gas extraction. Is it as safe as the state claims? But first, an official with the U.S. Department of Agriculture visited the Central Valley this week to learn more about the issues impacting rural communities. KVPR's Madi Bolaños reports his last stop was in East Fresno County. It's a warm afternoon in Reedley, a city of nearly 26,000 people. The USDA official Joaquin Altoro greets 79-year-old Salvador Salvantes and his wife outside the Riverland apartment complex. They get rental assistance through the USDA. Salvantes and his wife qualify for the aid because their rent is more than 30 percent of their monthly income. Before moving to Reedley, they lived in Dinuba, the neighboring city. Salvantes worked at a fruit packing facility for 40 years. When his wife was diagnosed with cancer, he became the sole provider. Then two years ago, he was hospitalized with pneumonia. He says he struggled to keep up with the bills after that. He paid $850 in rent, plus the other bills, he says. His total expenses came out to $1,500 every month. He says their Social Security benefits were not enough to cover the bills. So when his mother told him about the rental assistance program, he applied right away. He says it's been a huge relief. Most of the people in this rural city work packing pomegranates in the summer and nectarines in the winter. That's according to Nicole Ziba, the Reedley city manager. She says 40% of the population makes less than the median income. So we are considered under the California formula a disadvantaged community. So our demographic is unfortunately one where we're trying to bring people out of poverty. That's why she says programs like the USDA's rental assistance are desperately needed. At the Riverland apartment complex, the tenant's average income is just over $13,000. Through his trip down the Central Valley, Altoro says he's learned that the need for these resources is prevalent. But he says it all starts with creating new housing and rehabbing existing housing. I will tell you at the fact that we haven't been participating in as much in creating new supply. And I'm learning more and more as I'm seeing firsthand is that we have to participate in that new supply. He says he's looking forward to going back to D.C. to collaborate with other USDA departments to better serve rural communities. For KVPR News, I'm Adi Bolaños. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Fresno Unified received more than $700 million in federal pandemic relief funds and more than a year ago pledged to use that money to equip every classroom with HEPA filters to protect kids from airborne viruses and wildfire smoke. 
but an investigation by the Fresno Bee found that the district failed to keep its word. I spoke with reporter Gregory Weaver, who broke down the timeline of what happened. In January 2021, right when classes were preparing to start in-person schooling again um, for the first time in the pandemic, all these COVID relief funds that school districts had uh, gotten um, had a requirement that school districts document how they were improving indoor air ventilation in their classrooms. And Fresno Unified submitted a document to this saying that they were indeed using COVID funds to improve, um, improve the air, make the classroom air safer. And what they ended up buying were these UV lights. Um, Karen Temple, the operations officer, wanted to use these lights to be able to kill COVID virus. So this is what they ended up buying. And while those lights um, could be killing uh, viruses, they are not filtering indoor air pollution. Um, and this is, this is a problem when you have wildfire smoke in classrooms. So these machines were put in May and over the summer, there was an, a, there's an extra $400 million that the school district needed to spend from their CARES Act relief funds. And what they did with that money um, was up to the community. They needed to use um, community engagement techniques. Uh, they hosted a bunch of meetings over the summer uh, to get an idea of what the community priorities were for these funds. And a consistent idea amongst the community was to use that money to improve facilities, specifically to improve indoor air ventilation and filtration. How that ended up going into the, into the final spending plan for the district was another matter entirely. Um, of that $400 million, the final $400 million, the school district had $200 million left over um, where they, could, they effectively could have spent it on anything after addressing um, pandemic learning loss and all sorts of things that were more specific to, uh, to the curriculum, um, curriculum interruptions of the pandemic. And of that $200 million, the precise figure I think is $187 million. Of that $187 million, the district only put $50 million in unspecified facilities upgrades, and none of it was going towards immediate solutions to improving indoor air filtration and ventilation. That means that, that those dollars have not been used to put in portable HEPA filters that can be up until uh, a few days ago, might I add, for, um, for the HEPA filters they just put in. So of the 50 million, they decide not to put in immediate solutions. And that would involve putting in portable HEPA filters, which can be installed in a matter of a few weeks. Instead, they decided to do these long-term HVAC upgrades, which according to district documents, they plan on um, upgrading these uh, two schools a month, I think it is. And um, given that there are about 86 schools that still need these, these units, it's going to take close to four years to be able to do this. And nevertheless, if it's two years, three years, four years, these, these upgrades, while they will be permanent, will not make a difference in the immediate you know, exigencies of the pandemic. In your reporting, you contrasted Fresno Unified's response with other Valley districts. What did you find? Yeah, I'll focus on Clovis Unified 
because I think their machines that they've put in, the HEPA filters, are um, such a strong contrast to uh, the existing filtration efforts at, at Fresno Unified and because they're, they're, the, they're the neighbor to Fresno Unified. Um, so Clovis Unified got $106 million of COVID relief funds. They spent $4 million of that to install uh, carrier air filters, um, HEPA filters, in every classroom, which can filter 1,500 cubic feet of air per minute. So what this means is that um, they are filtering air in a 900 foot square, 900 square foot classroom, up to 12 times an hour. Now, um, ASHRAE, the, C, uh, the Society of Engineers, um, the CDC, the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, they their their minimum hourly air exchange rate to clean up um, elementary classroom air is three air changes an hour. So Clovis Unified is matching that standard up to four times over. Put this into perspective for us. Why is classroom air quality so important? So this is an entirely new field of uh, science right now. Uh, but what has been found in the last decade is, is, is quite clear that you have air pollution, PM2.5 pollution. These are small particles that enter, lung, enter the lungs get into the bloodstream, and then cross the tiny barrier between the blood and the brain, and this ends up interrupting brain chemistry. The reason why it does this is there's something on the order of 100 billion neurons in the brain. And while that may, that's, I mean, that's, an, that's a tremendous amount, there's actually two to three times that amount in the brain's immune cells. There's an, there's an incredible support network in the brain to just support neurons which are just single cells that you have for your entire life. So when you have these pollutants crossing the brain, you have these immune cells um, start to, to, to react to these pollution particles. And what that ends up doing is actually takes up the bandwidth of these immune cells, which are actually also giving the brain, uh, giving neurons um, these chemicals that are important for learning. So it's sort of a zero sum game how much how much your brain's immune cells are focused on um, air pollution takes away from those cells working towards the learning process. Um, and this has been proved empirically time and time again. You improve air filtration and air ventilation in classrooms, student test score performance improves by a significant amount. This is, this is the equivalent of when you add HEPA filters. This is a study done at LA Unified. After adding HEPA filters, student test scores improved as if they had reduced the student-teacher ratio by a third. Some of the people that you talked to in, in the article did a really good job framing what happened in Clovis Unified versus what happened at Fresno Unified as an issue of social justice. And, and can you just explain what, what that perspective is? So I think, I think there's a unique burden in Fresno Unified to be able to mitigate against air pollution in classrooms, specifically because um, Fresno Unified students are possibly at the epicenter of the United States' worst air basin. Um, not only is the San Joaquin Valley the most polluted air basin in the United States, there is a unique burden within central Fresno of criteria pollutants from warehouses, from industrial processes, from waste disposal processes, that are in their neighborhoods. And these, thing, these pollutants are also 
pollutants that are probably interrupting the learning process at the, at the neurochemical level. And so reducing those pollutants, which is a matter of taking out pollutants from land use policies that would not happen in wealthier areas, that is a matter of social justice. Those kids did not have a choice to be exposed to those pollutants, but nevertheless, they're being asked to be in classrooms that do have those pollutants. And the school district could be doing uh, mitigative efforts that could be reducing those pollutants. And they have the funds to do so. So now that the story is out, do you have a sense that Fresno Unified is going to take another approach and make this investment in their classrooms? Yes, I, I will say that uh, Karen Temple gave a testimony at the board meeting last night, and she's the chief operations officer at Fresno Unified. She's the one who has, um, who's in charge of leading these uh, classroom ventilation and filtration efforts for the school district. Um, she did tell Terry Sladek and Veva uh, Islas that the district could look into getting better HEPA filters if that is what the school board wants to do. Well, I've been talking with Gregory Weaver about his reporting in the Fresno Bee. Thank Gregory, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A few years ago, a regional water board commissioned a study to determine whether the wastewater produced in oil fields could be used to safely irrigate fields. The study ultimately found no identifiable health risk, but a recent investigative report uncovered some inconsistencies in the study's claims. KVPR's Carrie Klein spoke with a reporter in charge of that investigation, Liza Gross of Inside Climate News. So first off, Liza, can you tell me what is oilfield-produced water and what's typically in it? Yeah, so oilfield-produced water is the water that is produced by oil companies when they're drilling, trying to extract oil from underground. And it takes an incredible amount of water to get that oil out of the ground in Kern County in California because it's very, very tarry and sort of like thick molasses. And so what they do is they do what's called steam injection or steam flooding, and they put copious quantities of hot water underground to try and loosen that tarry oil and try to get it to flow and come back up to the surface. And they use a variety of additives which oil companies for years did not disclose. They finally disclosed it for these studies. And it's all sorts of chemical additives that have very long names, but basically some of them are things to kill microbes, biocides. Some of them are things to just keep the flow going, I guess you could say. Hundreds and hundreds of additives are are used with this process, and they come back up to the surface along with water that's already down there in the aquifers that might have naturally occurring contaminants like arsenic and, and uranium. Right. And so this, this process actually creates, uh, it, it, it results in the production of billions of barrels of, of this produced water uh, per year here in California. And so, you know, the, the practice of using this water to then irrigate fields has actually been in use for years in Kern County. Is that right? That is right. So in 1994, the Coelho Water District in Kern County entered an agreement with Chevron to take the wastewater that Chevron is using as a result of extracting oil in its Kern River oil field. And basically they 
forged what they called a win-win agreement because it's costly to dispose of this water for the oil companies, especially if you have to truck it long distances or, you know, you could, you could dispose it on site too. Chevron's pretty big, so, you know, it's going to be less costly for them. But Coelho is constantly dealing and other water districts in Kern County are constantly dealing with water scarcity. So they welcomed this alternative source of water which oil companies are producing in mass quantities because the, the amount of water it takes to extract a barrel of oil, that ratio keeps increasing every year. Right. And then this water, when it is used for irrigation, it is treated first, correct? That's right. And so it goes through what you might call low-tech treatment process. It's basically a process of putting the water through a series of tanks that treat the water through gravity separation to sort of separate the oil from the water. And then it gets through a mechanical separator to again sort of agitate and get the oil particulates out so that they can be skimmed off. And then it finally goes through walnut hole filters, which apparently are pretty good at, at getting oil particulates to glom onto them, and then those are disposed of. And then that water gets sent north through about an eight mile long pipeline to the Koala Water District, which then blends it with surface water and groundwater before sending it to farmers. Right, really interesting process. And then remind me, where in Kern County is the Koala Water District? Oh, it's north of Bakersfield. So the Kern River oil field is just pretty much right on the bluffs over in Bakersfield, they're called, which overlooks that whole area. And then eight miles north is Coelho. Okay. And so even though this this practice has been happening for, for decades in some places, central to this article that you published, your investigation, um, is this study that the Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board commissioned looking into using oil field produced water for irrigation. So tell me, you know, what what was this study and what led to it even happening? Well, 2015, um, a lot was going on that year. One thing happened, legislators in California realized that oil companies were injecting their wastewater into wells without sufficient safeguards. And basically, they were worried that this was going to threaten nearby protected groundwater that would be needed for drinking water and irrigation in a state that's constantly dealing with droughts. So they called for hearings to increase oversight of this practice. And at the same time, there were heightened public concerns about the practice. So basically, people were, you know, when they found out about it, there were petitions, there were protests at the Capitol. And actually, those protests at the Capitol led one assembly member who's no longer there, but former assembly member uh, Mike Gatto realized that while this, this water could be used by farmers who want to go organic, and they might stop using pesticides, but use this water and still be considered organic. So he wanted to run a bill that would label anything grown with produced water, you know, that, that let consumers know that that's what was being used to grow this, their food. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so, yeah, and so that, you know, then the water board realized, well, we need to make sure this practice is safe. So then they started the process to get an expert safety panel together and then, you know, a group to do studies to evaluate the process. And so that study was published last fall. Uh, it found that there are no identifiable health risks associated with irrigating fields using this produced water. And yet you found a few problems with that conclusion. You know, talk about the fact that uh, that other researchers and analysts say there simply wasn't enough information to actually make that conclusion. 
Yes. And one of the panel members on the expert panel, Seth Shankoff, who is at PSE Healthy Energy, and basically that's a nonprofit research institute made of physicians, engineers, and scientists who sort of evaluate the what they would say the health dimensions and environmental dimensions of the oil and gas operations. And he said something that really stuck with me, which is to, if you want to find an effect of a practice, you need to design a study that's able to find that effect or any effect. And he said that's not what happened. And that's sort of a head scratcher in a way, but what he, what he really meant was that the scientists' techniques to evaluate unknown contaminants in crops are just light years behind other methods to evaluate, say, things in soil or things in water. And so then the other big problem was that the firm that did the studies for the board, at the board's direction, I should say, started out looking, identifying a list of chemicals that uh, oil producers were using, and then narrowed that down to a list of chemicals of concern. But then the problem is that a lot of those compounds are going to turn into something else through all the time they go, you know, they're put down wells under intense heat and pressure, then they come back up and then they go through, you know, the water to through these canals, through a variety of processes that it's unlikely, scientists told me, that they would be in the same state. Yet the studies look for them in their original form. That means many scientists said that the only thing they could say is safe is that really tiny fraction of things they look for. Right. And then, of course, lots of um, oil producers don't even, I mean, it's proprietary information, the, the, the compounds that they use. So many of them are not even available to the public to even know what was in there in the first place. Well, I should say one thing that was sort of a step forward was that the board required the oil industries and actually some of the chemical manufacturers to disclose what they were putting down those wells. What they did not disclose, however, was how much and how frequently. And so the water board called that the recipe, and they claimed that was proprietary information. The problem is that that information is critical to understanding how toxic something is that you're using. You can't just sort of make assumptions about that. So that was a big problem, scientists told me. Right. Yes, indeed. And then, of course, you also uncovered conflicts of interest among both the consultants who were hired to write this study and also members of the Food Safety Board that reviewed it at the at the Regional Water Board. Yes. Um, and in fact, public interest groups had raised concerns about conflicts of interest on the expert panel pretty much at the beginning when they discovered that one panel member was actually working as a consultant for a firm that was paid by one of the providers of produced water to do this study. And that study didn't find any problems, but that does raise the question of when you have a scientist who's basically working on behalf of an industry, how, how does bias creep into that? Is there unconscious bias? Is there bias because you know you might not work for that firm again if you find problems that the firm had done? So public interest groups are very concerned about that. Plus, another panel member worked for a consulting firm that also does work for the oil industry and actually had been nominated to the panel by Chevron. And her participation on the panel was originally paid for by Chevron. Wow. Well, so what made you look twice at this study? You know, what, what gave you an inclination that not all the puzzle pieces fit together here? 
Well, I guess, you know, I, I was curious about this practice some time ago, and I just didn't have a whole lot of time to dig really deeply into what was going on. And when I started to talk to more, the more people I started to talk to, the more questions um, I had. And I realized that this process really hadn't been scrutinized very carefully for a long time. I mean, it had been done for decades, really, with little oversight. And the people who were sort of engaging in the process would say things like, well, nobody's falling over dead, or <laughs> we don't see any, any serious problems, but they weren't also looking for them. So I just wanted to take a closer look at how this could be and, and what was going on. And so you published the story almost two weeks ago on, on February 6th. What has been the, the response so far? Well, actually, I haven't really heard from the water board. And um, to follow up on your other question, I didn't mention that, that the firm that the board had hired to do the studies actually has a long history of ties to the oil industry. And none of the people who work for that firm, GSI Environmental, were interested in speaking to me on the record. And so the next sort of installment of this series will take a closer look at that firm and the kind of work they've done in the past and whether it's really possible to be unbiased when you have such deep ties to an industry that regulators are using your work to decide whether this practice should continue or not. Really interesting. I look forward to that. Okay, well, Liza Gross, West Coast reporter for Inside Climate News, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. In the last two years, wildfires have destroyed up to one-fifth of giant sequoias, all of them larger than four feet in diameter. Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park officials held a virtual meeting Thursday to talk about how the trees continue to face major threats. KVPR's Sarith Hawk was there and is joining me now. Welcome, Sarith. Thanks, Kathleen. So what do fire officials consider to be one of the biggest threats to these trees? Well, really, the most they talked about was climate change because it leads to warmer and drier conditions, which in turn prolong the fire season. And drought really adds to that threat. So it's really a double whammy here in California. And the fires that do start burn faster and hotter and lead to what scientists are calling high severity fires. And that's when it results in at least 75% tree mortality. So fire officials say that's killed about 13,000 giant sequoias over the last two years alone, just from the Castle Fire in 2020 and most recently the KNP complex. UC Berkeley fire scientist Dr. Scott Stevens, he got a little emotional when he talked about seeing some of the impacts in person. I was in the castle last year myself. It was one of the saddest days in my entire life when I was walking from big tree to big tree, looking up in the air at a giant barbecue. There was no foliage. The thing was gone. Then I'd walk again, walk again, see another, see another. Thousand-year-old tree probably had 100 fires maybe in its life, and then they get killed in two years. This is really a travesty. Wow. And then what about the most recent fire, the the KNP complex? Was there any discussion about the impact of that now that it's been a few months since it was contained? Yes, surprisingly, park officials say they got lucky. 
mostly because of the weather that allowed for a lot of firefighting breaks on the ground, as well as opportunities for helicopters to move in and drop retardant. And although the fire did burn through a lot of groves, 16 of them, they say most of the fires weren't high severity. So now park officials are looking at the areas that burned with low to moderate severity to see how they can build on the fire resilience in those areas. So we know that prescribed burns are one way that fire officials are managing the forest. Is that all they can do? Actually, fire officials are increasingly looking at what they call restorative thinning, and that means they're actively cutting down shade-intolerant trees, right, like firs and cedars, to help drop the canopy and break up fuels. And that's dead and down trees that can reach the canopy and actually kill the tops of trees when fires do start. So they stress that this is not a timber grab. It's really about restoration, which is what you leave, not what you take. What are some of the biggest problems firefighters face in in protecting these forests in the face of climate change and drought? You know, it really boils down to staffing, and that's being able to staff and pay enough firefighters on and off a fire season. That seemed to be just the biggest challenge that was talked about. The panelists all said that during fire season, firefighters are putting in a ton of overtime, sometimes doubling their 40-hour work weeks to 80 hours over a six-month period. So you can imagine they're working about a year's worth in six months. And off-season, we have to understand that the work doesn't really end. It's really a crucial time for fire suppression efforts. And sometimes the right weather conditions only line up for a short amount of time to do those prescribed burns. Here's Sequoia and Kings Canyon fuel management specialist Andrew Kremer talking more about it. The staffing has to be stood up to meet those those tiny burn windows. One thing I didn't get into earlier was how fire season, if it never ends, then uh, prescribed burn season never begins. So if that comes from outside, if that becomes bolstering the federal workforce, then that's that's where I see it going. And there is there is momentum for for the staffing issue, and it is it's a serious issue. We've touched a lot so far, touched on a lot so far. What was your most surprising takeaway from this talk? You know, the scientists really talked about the history of these forests, and I learned a lot about that, Um, particularly how different they looked 100 years ago when the park was first established in 1890. And it turns out fire is a huge part of that story. So a century ago, the forests were much more sparse. You could see long distances and not as much density of trees as you do now. And there was much more diverse mixture of younger trees next to older trees. And that really meant that the forest was actively regenerating. The biggest difference then was that natural fire, like lightning-caused fires, were allowed to move through these forests. But the introduction of fire suppression really changed that. It actually disrupted the natural order of the forest. And although it allowed more trees to grow, it also put them more at risk for fire. Here's Sequoia N. Kings Canyon Chief of Resources Management and Science, Dr. Christy Brigham. These forests are what we call frequent fire forests. And when fire burns through them frequently, it removes those ladder fuels. It creates these small openings where you get that regeneration that that giant sequoias really rely on. Um, And so removal of that fire successfully by us because we wanted to protect these forests that we loved from a process that we perceived as destructive actually changed the structure of the forest 
to disastrous consequences, unfortunately. Did this talk offer any solutions about what we can do to better protect these trees? Yes, the panelists, they really focused on two things, and that's first doing our part to reduce the effects of climate change, and not just in our lifestyle, but also supporting things like climate change initiatives. And they asked for the public's understanding and support for active forest management activities like prescribed burns. You know, sometimes, you know, the smoke can be a lot and there can be complaints about that, but they just want people to be a little bit more understanding that, you know, these are the things they have to do to protect the forests. Well, Sarith, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Children's books about topics like race, gender identity, and sexual orientation are increasingly at risk of being banned by schools and libraries across the country. But Fresno State Assistant Professor of Education, Dr. Selena Van Horn, believes these books play a vital role in helping young people of all backgrounds succeed in the classroom. In our conversation, she also spoke about the surprising positive effects the pandemic may have had on early childhood literacy. You know, when I think about books for myself, they are really that opening into the world, the worlds that I may not have known before. And I believe as we learn how books can be mirrors to us, that we can see ourselves in literature, and they can be a window into the world that we may not have known before. And so to think about the political or the politicizing of education, I really believe that teaching and education is inherently political, that we are making our decisions every day, but I don't see that as a negative. I see that as every day as an educator, we get to make decisions to honor and celebrate the identities, the languages, the cultures of our students and those that who are not in our classroom. And so with literature specifically, children have the ability to see themselves, to see a situation take place and follow a character through. How do they navigate difficult situations? What questions do they ask? How are they feeling? And how does that make me feel as a reader? One of the main things that I have learned as a literacy educator is to ask children how does this book make you feel? I think it's something that I learned from one of my mentors when I was in school, Dr. Angie Zapata. It's something that I share with my students who are future and current teachers, that if the first question we ask is, how does this book make you feel? We instantly become connected with the characters and what's happening. And so for children who don't see themselves in the books, if they are a child coming into your classroom, students of color who only see literature of white children, white characters, they may feel that their identities, their race, ethnicity, their presence is not valued in the classroom. And they don't get to see the amazing contributions that people like them have been part of in our community throughout history. For our LGBTQ students specifically, they may not be able to see the amazing LGBTQ plus individuals in our history who have made history, who have laid the groundwork to do the amazing things that we get to do today. And keeping those books out of our classrooms and out of our public libraries isn't just hurting our children who, who see themselves in those books. It hurts all children, because even if a student 
is not, if even if they are a white middle-class student that the school curriculum and the literature that we mostly see looks like them, if they don't have the opportunity to learn about the contributions and the beauty and celebrate the languages and cultures, ethnicities and races of our community, they are also hurt. They don't get to be part of that. They don't get to learn and to honor and ultimately to stand in solidarity with their community members. So the way you're talking about education is a departure from, I think, the way many of us have have thought about our experiences, you know, growing up where the goal was to hit certain markers. The goal was to achieve a level of competency in a particular subject so that you could progress to the next level. There's not a lot of room for feeling in, in in a mindset like that. You know, the fundamentals that we talk about are serving the purpose of creating a better world for our young people. They are growing up to be the community members, to be the teachers and the doctors, and to be leaders in our community in a way that we ask them to make hard decisions and to look at those around them when they do that. Growing up learning basic skills and strategies are only tools to serve the purpose of the work we really need to be doing. We learn our phonics and spelling, and we learn how comprehension skills and all of that. So that way we can read the texts, that we can share what's going on, that we can work together for equality, for equity in our community. Our whole society is built with systemic inequalities and Our students can't break that down if they don't have the tools to do that. Yes, there are skills and strategies that are part of it. And we are teaching all of that still in our school. It's not an either or, it's a both and teaching for culturally sustaining practices in our classroom so that our students can have their languages and identities valued and learn with them. Too often in throughout history, students were told that if they were multilingual, that they wouldn't be as successful in school and inaccurately and and really just wrong telling parents that English only was the way for their child to be successful. But research shows that that's wrong, that sustaining multiple cultures and languages, the pluralism is actually what helps our students to grow. It helps them to grow in multiple languages and to be successful in both. Either or is not the way, it's a both and approach bringing in the funds of knowledge of our students, bringing in their languages and cultures, they get to practice that in the classroom with the skills and strategies of literacy and math, because those are tools for us to do the work. Seeing our students only as future producers to bring about money in our economy is not the best way to look at a beautiful future for them. To see them as leaders in our community who can make decisions for all of our community members, to value them, those things need to be taught with it. You can teach the skills and strategies, the basics of literacy, the ABCs and all of that, while also reading really beautiful literature that honors authors of color, multilingual authors and illustrators, and shows our children the beautiful cultures and languages that they already knew in their classroom literature as well. And they can do them both. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the pandemic and the extent to which 
that extended period of time in which education was moved into digital spaces uh, will have lasting impacts on a, a generation of learners. You know, there's been a lot of conversation in the public about this idea of learning loss, which I know is a term a lot of educators um, aren't crazy about, but I, I'm wondering to, to what extent was this uh, a really significant moment for, for many, many, many young people? Yes, learning loss is not a term that I am a fan of because I think when we think about our kids at home, perhaps during the pandemic, they maybe had the opportunity to be with loved ones, maybe with some grandparents or other community members, and they did not lose in their learning, but they gained. They had the opportunity to speak many languages. They had the opportunity to learn stories in connection with what they were doing in their classroom work um, through the computer, they got to have their family take part in that learning with them. It's often something that in the US, especially, we separate our children in that learning time. They go to school away from us and parents do everything they can. Family members are doing everything they can to be involved, but this allowed for more learning. So in some ways, we could say we lost out on the opportunity to be face-to-face -face in spaces physically with our, our students and maybe with their friends, but our children gained a lot during that time too. And thinking about learning as just a checklist of tasks that we will check off, and as long as they met it by a certain age and a certain grade, then we did our job as a society, is not really the best way to look at what is the purpose of learning? What is the purpose of education in general? And if our students can gain more from their time with their families, bring that into their classroom discussions. Our teachers have been working so hard. They're amazing. They're some of my favorite people day and night, and they value the voices of the family. They want those voices and share, to share the identities and cultures. They want them to uh, be connected in those ways. And I think that our children had the opportunity to see, again, that it didn't have to be either I go away to learn or that there's home languages and school languages or that there are books I'm allowed to read at home and books at school, or I get to see my family honored at home and not at school, which is ultimately so heartbreaking because the purpose of our time at school is to uplift our communities, to work together in solidarity. Does it always happen that way? No, but there's so much opportunity for it. And so I prefer not to think of our time during the pandemic as a learning loss in any way, because what we may have lost in a skill one day, we gained so much in our time with the community members outside, being able to go for a walk and learn from the person down the street who runs a community garden, being able to connect with our neighbors, to spend more time with elder members in our community to tell us the oral stories that may not have been valued. Those are all part of the rich literacies that we cannot lose. And the only way to pass them on is to share them with each other. You know, I, I have to say it is so deeply refreshing to hear some positive talk about what we've all been through with this <laughs> pandemic. Thank you so much for that and, and for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. And finally, the fifth Fresno State Art Song Festival returns this year in person on February 25th and 26th. 
This year's event provides a performance, collaboration, competition, and presentation platform for composers, poets, and singers of the Central Valley, and features a special Valley Native guest artist. KVPR's David Aus spoke with Festival Director, Fresno State Professor Dr. Maria Briggs. Maria Briggs, so great to have you with us today. So fantastic to be back. It's very, very exciting. This is the fifth annual Art Song Festival that Fresno State is doing. Let's talk a little bit about Art Song. What is it and why does it matter? Art Song is the soul of vocal singing. It started with Schubert and Schumann in their drawing rooms where they invited their friends and sang the songs that they wrote to them, to their circle, and invited their friend singers. And a lot of those songs have been written for their singing friends. And, you know, it just took off and it just became bigger and bigger. And the, the great thing about an art song is that it's, you know, composers search meticulously for a suitable poem. So they, they find a poem that inspires them to write a song. And the song is a little microcosm in itself. There is a little mini drama inside an art song. So unlike opera, where it's such a large scale and uh, with orchestra and everything, you have a chance to showcase every element of a particular poem. And the pianist also has such an important role where uh, the piano written in such a way that complements the poem and tells the story as well. And then a singer can use so many different colors and subtlety and have that journey with the audience that just can be quite transforming. And it's a very intimate genre as opposed to the large-scale operatic works. As you were describing that, intimate is the word that came to mind for me. It really is. It's intimate between the two performers and then intimate between the performers and the audience as well. Now, you mentioned one of the hallmarks of your festival, an element that you've added over the years, is a poetry and composition element. And that makes this a multidisciplinary event as well. So I'd like to hear a little bit about how the poetry and composition element happens well, you know, it takes us all year to actually put it all together. And once this festival runs, we start again, because in February, we're going to announce the poetry competition. After the festival finishes, well, probably early March, we're going to announce our poetry competition. We usually give them a theme. Then, you know, in August, we announce our composition competition, and they all set that to the winning poem. We keep the poet name a secret. <laughs> so they've, they've already set all their compositions and we have five finalists, but they don't know who wrote the poem and the poets don't know that the poet doesn't know that their poem has won. We announce it all at the finals. So uh, we have poetry finalists. Of course, one of them is the winner. And so in December, composers submit their su submissions and we have our composition judges who then select finalists and the winner. Again, we don't announce the judges' prize until the finals. Then I give the music to our singers who practice it 
they start practicing in January, they learn all those songs, and then February they're going to, so in two weeks, they're going to present these finalist compositions. So it's a whole year process, you know, from poetry competition to the composition and then to our singers working with our pianists to premiere those works. And then does the audience then get to vote in this element then after they hear all the different musical settings of the winning poem? Well, that's the really fun part. So we do have judges' prizes, but we also have the audience prize where they get to win for their favorite art song. And we usually we don't tell them which one is selected for the judges' prize, so they don't know. So they get to vote for their favorite. And the same with our vocal showcase, the audience get to vote for their favorite singer as well. Now, you have a wonderful guest artist. Tell me about her. Yes. Oh, we are so, so excited. This is extremely special. Kelly O'Connor, who is an international mezzo-soprano, but originally from Fresno. So we are so thrilled that we can bring someone of this caliber to our students and say, look, this is somebody who grew up here and made it huge, and you can do this too. She has won a Grammy for one of her performances. She has premiered works and roles by such luminaries as John Adams. She's just very, very versatile. She's done a lot of contemporary music, but at the same time, she's right now she's singing uh, Mozart Requiem with Seattle Symphony. So, and she's done Mahler and, and Carmen and um, just a very versatile, very clever artist. Besides her performance, what will she be doing in a festival? Well, we're very lucky she will be with us for the entire festival. She will be giving two master classes and she will be giving a recital on, on Saturday at 6.30, February 26th. She's also going to do Q&A after her recital because I want her to be able to share her experience with our students. And I'm sure they'll have a lot of questions for her. If she's not too exhausted, I'm hoping that she will also judge the vocal showcase. Now, we talked about the interdisciplinary nature of Art Song and this festival because you have uh, faculty from the English department uh, helping with working with poets who are working on their submissions, composition faculty as well, and staff collaborative pianist and many of your vocal faculty as well. Another interesting element of this for students who are attending is uh, kinesiology. Oh, and yes. We've added that this year. You know, I always wanted our students to be aware and have access to sports psychologists and also work with people on performance anxiety. So I've partnered with our kinesiology department and they have been fantastic. We have faculty working with them in the morning to do stretches and breathing and then on Friday, there will be a two-hour workshop with two faculty from kinesiology on performance anxiety. Our students really look forward to that. It's great to see that added to the festival this year. It's an important component uh, for all performing musicians, but especially for vocalists who, you know, instrumentalists can sometimes kind of hide behind their instrument. As a vocalist, you're, you know much more exposed because it's just you, your own, your instrument. It's just you. So. Well, I, I tell my students, you are singing actors. 
you are musicians, but you're also singing actors. Nobody wants to just listen to the sound. I mean, unless you're listening to the CD, even then you will always tell how expressive the person is. But especially if you come, you know, people paid money, they paid their babysitters to come to a concert. You better tell them a story and be expressive and you better know every word you're singing and what it means and what is your motivation. And so that can be very nerve wracking. Also, unlike instrumentalists, there's language. It's not just pitch and rhythm and expression and phrasing. And they often sing in the language that they can't even speak. We encourage them to sing in German, Italian, French, Czech, Russian, Norwegian. So that's kind of another barrier and stress factor that they consider. Is a whole festival open to the public to attend? Yes, it's always open and it's free. I think it's fabulous opportunity for our community to not only see our talent, our student talent is just amazing, but also get an insight on how singers work with top professionals. I should mention another vocal faculty we have returning is Dr. Robin Fisher from Sacramento State. So her master classes are going to be fantastic. Please come, support our composers, come to the composition finals, come to the vocal finals, and do come and see Kelly O'Connor. Our concert is free. The fifth annual Fresno State Art Song Festival is coming up on February 25th and 26th with a recital by guest artist Kelly O'Connor on Saturday the 26th. For Valley Edition, I'm David Aus. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mathi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity.